0: Romans 1. I'm going to be honest. I, I sat out when I started this message and I said, I'm going to finish the chapter. Which was like five verses. And my thinking was way too high because I made it through one. <laughs> so, verse 28. Before we get get into that verse, let's let's refresh our minds. That obviously, it's been a couple of weeks, and um, just kind of refresh our minds to what we've been going over, and kind of Paul's remember Paul's introduction. Um, first, uh, from very very back, when we, verse one, as we saw, Paul considered himself a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, and he was separated unto the gospel of God, and remember th- we 're talking about this is Paul writing what he called his gospel that 's what Romans is, Paul writing his gospel and <clears throat> remember he's, he he kind of before he gets into that, he kind of broke, broke away and gave a little taste of the gospel and then he went back into his introduction um, in verse seven, verse sixes and seven and then we see kind of his thesis in verse sixteen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in the very next verse, he says, for, in the, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's, almost, that's Paul's thesis statement for what he's going to be dealing with throughout the book of Romans. He's going to be expounding upon this gospel. And in verse 18, remember, from verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way to verse, I think, is 20 in chapter 3, Paul exposes mankind. Paul takes mankind and holds him up and shows you what mankind really is like. And it's not a good picture. So for the next probably year to year and a half, Paul is going to be blasting mankind. Because that's how long it's going to take us to get into chapter 3. And then we come down to... Remember verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up. And then in verse 26, For this cause God gave them up. And then we get down to verse 28, and that's where we're at right here, and it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So I have three points on this. I, as I was at work today I just a, a title to a message which I don't, don't really do that much but I thought if I were to title this message it would be titled The Trial. And our, our three points today is going to be the examination the cross examination and the judgment so it's almost like a trial so our first point is the examination and and Paul says in verse 28 and just as this is the very same thing Paul said in verse 24 and 26 that I just mentioned god gave them up for this cause for this reason god gave them up and just as god gave them over is what this verse says you think Paul's trying to tell us something here if he says it again and again and again, the same thing. He's not doing that because he has dementia and he forgot that he just said it two sentences ago. He's doing it because it's important and it's important for those Roman believers at that time and it's just as important for us to, today at this time. It's vitally important. And this isn't just some simple truth that Paul can glance over. Remember this letter to the Romans is Paul's gospel it's his exposition of the gospel to them. Remember him stating that he is not ashamed of the gospel in verse 26, but he goes on into the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And now he expounds on that, and that's where we're at today. Paul is starting with the bad news before he gets to the good news. That's what the gospel The gospel is the good news, but he starts with the bad news, and that's where we're at. And that's why it was vitally important for Paul to go over this stuff, and it should be just as important for us to. Start with the bad news. And the bad news was even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. That's the bad news. That's where mankind has went. Fallen man doesn't have good thoughts about wanting to please God and worship Him. He has thoughts of saying, Thou art weighed in the balances. And art found wanting. That's what that's what mankind would like to say to God. You have been weighed in the balance and are found lacking, God. You are lacking. That's what fallen man thinks. They think they have weighed him and found him lacking. In reality, if they had weighed God, they'd have saw that he tips the scales. You could put everything in the universe on one side of the scale and God on the other side of the scale and God would obliterate the scale. They haven't weighed God. But that's literally what this verse is saying. And just as they did not see fit. This means that they did not see Him fit in an examination. Or it means to recognize as genuine after examination to approve, or to deem worthy. It's as though they held up God in an examination. They put Him under a microscope and looked at God. They looked at Him through the telescope, and they said, He is lacking. That's an insane thought of fallen man. That's what the mind of fallen man has went to. That God has found lacking. That you could look at Yahweh and say He is lacking in any way, shape, or form. That's where mankind has went. And that's the bad news. That's the insane thought of fallen man. This is how men are now after the fall. We think we can put God on trial, and if we don't like Him, we can just cast Him to the wayside. Like We can, we, we can, we can hold God up and say, you know what? I don't like you. You are lacking in this area. I cast you to the wayside. I'm going to go about my life doing what I want. That's insane. And I use that word because it is complete insanity to do that. It's complete insanity to examine God and think you can cast Him by the wayside and go about your day. And I can tell you He's not sitting on the side like a lost puppy, like some would have you to believe. Like He's just begging you to come back. Like He's knocking on your door weeping, please let me in. That's a weak, pathetic God. Our God is sovereign and omnipotent. A sovereign, omnipotent being gets what He wants. How can I say that? Because He's in control of all things and He's all-powerful. Therefore, if he's in control of all things and all powerful, he does what he wants. And who can stay his hand, as Daniel says, or Nebuchadnezzar actually says in the book of Daniel? If he wants in your heart, he could kick down the door and come in if he so pleases. Our next point would draw this out a little bit. The first point was the examination. Man examining God Now the next point is the cross-examination. This is what happens next. God gives them over to a reprobate mind. That's what the text says, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, that's what they did, they examined God and said, we do not like to retain God in our knowledge. Therefore, they passed Him to the wayside, and now what happens is God gave them over to a reprobate mind. This is God doing this in response to them doing it to Him. They see Him as unfit or not worthy and they want to set Him aside, but God does it to them. Maybe that may sound a little like a synergist, but I'm no way going down that route. And as Reformed folks, we need to be careful also. We need to be careful about what about treating God almost like a deist would. I see this often in reform writings and, and stuff. It's almost as God ordained everything from eternity past and then just stepped back and sat down and let everything happen. That's not how our God works. Yes, He ordains everything from eternity past, but He is involved in it. You know, just like our salvation. What does He do in our salvation? Does He just... Josh, I, I, I from eternity past, I'd ordain you to be saved on this day, to be justified on this day, and just sit back. No. He comes and He regenerates you. And He gives you faith and repentance. And He places you in His Son. And He seals you with His Spirit. He's involved in it. In the same way, God doesn't just ordain the reprobates for the day of judgment and then just sit back. He's also active in that. (laughs) Now it sounds like I swung the pendulum from the, the synergist side to the hyper Calvinist side. I went way too far now this way. Now, what I'm saying is what Paul says in Romans 9 Does the potter. Does not the potter out of the same lump of clay have power to make one unto honorable use and another unto dishonorable use? It's the same lump of clay. The potter takes and takes one and he makes it for honorable use and out of the same exact lump makes it for dishonorable use. He's the potter. God is the potter. He's not the clay. We don't get to make him into whatever we want to. We allow scripture to declare unto us who he is. And Scripture says right here that God gave them over in response to them not seeing fit to acknowledge Him any longer. And that's what Paul says. And that's why Paul says, And just as. It means even as or in proportion to. So you think you can just cast God God by the wayside and not have consequences. This is the cross-examination. Mankind thinks they have examined God and found Him lacking, but God is the judge, and when He examines us, He examines us perfectly, holy, and righteous. In doing this, mankind is found lacking. God will never be found lacking. There's no imperfections with God, and we're full of them. That's all we are is a big blob of imperfection. And God, there is not even one speck of imperfection with. So He gives them over after the cross-examination. One last point on this cross-examination. Is the word for fit or like... This is kind of a cool play on words, I believe, Paul uses right here. The word for fit or like... Is just the opposite for the word for depraved or reprobate. I don't. Was it say in ESV? Do you have the? Yeah, it says uh, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do. So debased. Yeah, debased is the, the is the word there in the ESV. The, the the word for debased is just all it is. It's the same word with a in front of it, and we know you know you have the theist who believes in God and an atheist. Who does not believe in God. That's all they did. They just put the A in front of it. And it, it's the opposite of what it is. And that's what's happening here. In verse 28. They did not like. They, they did not see approval. And then just the opposite happens. Like and approval. God takes that. And he dislikes and disapproves of them. It's just the opposite. Mankind did not approve of God, so he gave them over to unapproved minds. For what? reference for that, it's He rejects them. Yeah. Wow. That's his giving over. Yeah, I, but l- listen to this. this. This next point right here, this point on the judgment... So we've seen the, the, the examination and the cross examination. The third point here is the judgment. What does God give them over to? He gives them over to a reprobate mind to do something, to do those things which are not convenient, which are not proper. What it, does it say in ESV? What ought not to be done. Yeah, not to be done. Not to those be done. Things what ought not Filthy, do. things, crude joking. Which, not, God gave them over to do that. That's what the text says. I'm not, I didn't make this up. We're going verse by verse, and that's what the text says. God gives them over to a debased, reprobate, disapproved mind to do those things. This is dangerous ground, is it not? This is holy ground we stand on right here. This is ground I dare not tread on unless God has made it clear in His Word. But He has. God gives them over to sin. That's what the text says. God gave them over to sin. They disapproved God. They examined God as though they really examined God and said, I disapprove of God, so He gives them over to sin. I know our evangelifish churchianity, they don't like that, but, but it's true. And I'm going to seek to prove this to us. Turn back to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4... Verse twenty-one. When one of y'all get there, where you read it? Oh, sure. it? Says, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You Exodus f- oh, oh, five three. five twenty-one or four twenty-one. I mean, I read five twenty-one. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What does God say He's going to do there? Harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 7.3 says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Exodus 7.13 says, And he hardened Pharaoh's heart that... He hearkened not unto them, as the Lord has said. By hardening Pharaoh's heart, by his heart being hardened, it increased his sin. He did not let his people go, right? Because his heart was hardened. <laughs> But it says, the text says God hardened his heart. I will harden his heart. And I know people like to twist that and say, well, God didn't really harden... That's what the text says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then guess what? He did harden Pharaoh's heart. And then guess what? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And therefore, he increased his sin. Turn to Proverbs 16.4. Are you there, Jason? Will you read it? The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Right. Keep on. No. You the Lord has made everything, or made all things for Himself. Even the wicked for the day of evil, or the day of trouble. That's what the text says. God is the potter. That's pretty much what the text says, right? God is the potter. Out of the same lump of clay, He could take one and form it to honorable use and the same lump, the same sinful humanity, and use one for honorable use. One for dishonor, one for honor. That's what this text is pretty much saying too. He's made all things for Himself, even the wicked for the day of judgment, or the day of evil, or the day of trouble. One more text. Mark chapter 4. We Just in case you think, that, well, the God of the Old Covenant was such a mean guy. Which verse? 4.10. Okay. Jace, you mind reading 10, 11, and 12? Mm-hmm. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve like, asked him about the, the parables. And he said to them, "Do you To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is parables, so that they may indeed see, but know, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's hard. That's a hard text. That's a hard text to deal with. Jesus says, all things were done in parables to make sure people were not converted. So they didn't understand. And I know I've heard this preacher say that Jesus talked in parables to make it more relatable to the people. That's not what Jesus said. He said He spoke in parables to make sure that if it was given to you to be part of the kingdom, I speak to you in parables, you understand. If it was given to so-and-so to not, under, to not be part of the kingdom, I speak in parables so they don't understand. The KJV actually, I think, strengthens this. It says, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without all things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven. Sound like Jesus taught in parables and it kept people in their sins. They weren't converted. They couldn't be converted because they couldn't understand a parable. And even... Even if they could be understood by the natural mind, somewhat they could never be understood spiritually. Because we know this because of was the First Corinthians chapter two that it's spiritually discerned. Man cannot understand. It's not necessarily he doesn't want to also, but he also cannot understand. He doesn't want to and he cannot, just like the law of God. He does not want to obey the law of God, but he also cannot obey the law of God, as we'll see in ten years when we get to Romans 8. God gives people over. He hardens their heart. He ordains the very sins they commit, but at the same time, those people love and choose those same very sins and they harden their own hearts and they want to be given over that's what this text here in Romans is showing us that men want to be given over why because they think that they examine God and they put him by the wayside the exact opposite had happened so God punishes sin with what more sin Mankind is on a leash, per se. I talked about this last time. Almost like he's on a leash, and he can get to these, these sins here, but he wants those sins over there. And at one point, God lets go of the leash, and they run headlong right into him. And that's what we do as fallen man. James 5.5 5 says, You have lived... Now this... This can hit home to all of us. James 5.5, 5, it says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You had fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Obviously, we won't be slaughtered. But I think as Americans, we can all say the first part, part of that is somewhat true of us. We have lived with abundance. We have lived in somewhat self-indulgence. Only by the grace of God, we don't go to the day of slaughter. And this here isn't something we should be amening. That God gives people over. This is something that should cause us grief. This is something that as a Christian, as if it have not brought you to weeping over those that you know that keep suppressing the truth, maybe you should look in the mirror and examine your own heart. Remember Paul in Romans 9? That I have great heaviness and continually continual sorrow in my heart, for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh." He had heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. So much so that, it, I don't think I could ever say this, but so much so that he wished he was accursed from Christ, that his kinsmen according to the flesh may be saved. Brethren, I know this. we've been through some hard times recently, And I think all of us, can. I think everybody in the world can say it. And we've seen some of the worst of people recently. And in this, we may have thoughts we shouldn't have had about those people. Brethren, what's the most important reason you're here, though? To advance the kingdom of God and to see more people worshiping Him because He is worthy. So it should cause a sadness to see men suppressing, suppressing the truth and giving over to sin. Not amen, brother. Not amen, God's giving them over. It's we go to them with the gospel and we go to our closets and pray in tears. <clears throat> but remember this, God is more gracious and loving than all of us combined. So we can rest in the fact that God is doing what is right. We'll understand it someday. I'll understand someday why my grandfather, who was my only real father figure in my life, rejected the truth as far as I know all the way up to his death. And he was the only one person in my family that did not hear the gospel from my lips. Even in that I know God did what was best. And God was glorified. You see, God doesn't do things willy-nilly. He doesn't just throw a temper tantrum and give somebody over. He's long-suffering and He's patient. That's the thing we need to keep in mind when dealing with hard truth like God giving people over to their sins. God is loving and merciful and long-suffering and patient. However, He is also just. And that's the reason for giving them over. His justice demands that they be punished for their sins. Just as His justice demands that all of us be punished for our sins. However, we have one that stepped in and took that punishment. We have the one that satisfied the justice of God, that demanded that we die for our sins. He stepped in and died for our sins. He soaked that wrath up of God that we deserve. That we've earned from day one of coming into this earth. <clears throat> he fulfilled that law that we break. And then went to the cross and died for us. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. You see this? You see this? We deserve to be given over to our sins, just as the unbeliever. This is what we have to wrestle with. We deserve death just as much, maybe even more, than the one who is getting it. But God chose to save you. Because of anything in you, (laughs) it's in spite of anything in you. This should blow our minds and make our hearts leap with joy. Brethren, you're not counted as one that has given over to sin because of God's ultimate purposes, not because of something he saw, something good he saw in you. Not because he looked through the corridors of time and saw that you would believe on his son. The truth is, if God didn't give you faith, you would never believe. If God wouldn't have awakened you out of spiritual death, you would still be dead. If God wouldn't have placed you in His Son, you would never have seen His beauty. If God wouldn't have given you His Spirit and kept you, we would all run back to the mire from which we came. That's true of you, me, and every single other person that God has saved. He saved undeserving, wretched, wicked sinners. And if we don't see ourselves like that apart from Christ, there's no hope. I'll tell you, even as a believer, who honestly, I do not struggle with the fact that I believe the gospel. It's not one of my struggles. I I know I believe the gospel. But I beg God not to give me over to sin. Now, not just because of this text here. In the past. I'll tell you this too. I just... this. I just watched this documentary on the the Unabomber. And believe it or not, as I was watching it, I was like, it made me that much more grateful to God. Because He is me. Now, I probably shouldn't post this on social media, but I went and read His manifesto. And I'm like, I agree. Until you start blowing people up. But... God kept me from that. When I see the worst of men and I hear their stories, when I watch prison documentaries and all, I I like to watch that kind of stuff and and see this. When I hear their stories, I'm like, that was me. He was the same thing that I was at when I was 17, 18 years old. 20, 20 years old. He was doing the same thing I was doing. Why is that not me now? But by the grace of God. God gives people over. And we don't know who they are. So we have the job to do, right? So we saw the examination of man examining God. We saw the cross-examination, which was the real examination of God examining man and finding him lacking. We saw the judgment of God, therefore, taking them and giving them over to sin. And now we go to our application. First point is preach Christ. You're like, well, that's obvious. It's always obvious. But we don't do it. We don't do it as much as we should do it. So it can't be that obvious. And I say this looking in a mirror. Preach Christ. By all means, preach Christ. This is all that matters at the end of the day. It doesn't matter whether if you eat or drink or have a nice house or a job and families and friends at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what have you done with Christ. There's a quote that says, "...one life will soon be passed, Only what is done for Christ will last. Remember that. Yes, we should take care of physical needs of people, but they need Christ at the end of the day more than their physical needs. See, that's part of the problem with modern day missions. They want to go build wells and build houses and feed people and get them water, but they don't preach Christ. Not all of them are like that but a great majority of them are. Building a house for a homeless person, it'll make you feel good about yourself, but that person will still die and end up in hell. So what does it matter? They'll die and end up in hell with their bellies full. If you build a house for them, then you don't preach the gospel to them, you're just giving them a greater opportunity to sin and have a greater judgment. Yeah. So which one's more important? And I'm not saying we don't do the former. I'm saying we do both. We feed the hungry. We build houses. We, we dig wells, but we preach Christ. And if I don't have the opportunity to build somebody a house or, or feed them, I still preach Christ. We cannot neglect preaching Christ to the world. Even to us here, we, this, this little church, we haven't been part of global overseas missions at all but we don't want to neglect what God has given us here. You notice our our area here, if you want an overseas mission, they come to us. You go down to Myrtle Beach, you run into people from everywhere. They come to God, that's why I moved here. I saw the numbers of 14 million people, 11 million, I think it was 11 million people that come to Myrtle Beach during tourist time, which now, there's not really tourist time, that's all year round. But for, for a time being, there was from like April to September, 11 million people would come here. And I thought, why would I not go there? Everybody comes to me to hear the gospel. But we need to preach Christ to those around us. Second point of application is to be grateful for your salvation. You didn't earn it, nor do you deserve it, it's given by grace to you. God could have justly given you over to your sins that you loved. God could have gave us over to the sins that we actually loved. But in His grace, mercy, and love, He chose to save us from our sins. We should take time on a regular basis to reflect on our salvation and give gratitude to God. For example, I often think of the man I was before Christ. And it almost always makes me feel grateful for what God has changed me into. Now, I'm still far from perfect. but maybe you weren't quite the rebel I was. And you think I wasn't that much different before Christ than I am now. That's a dangerous position to be in. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are different if you're in Christ. And if you don't think so, you think way too little of sin. So be grateful for your salvation. Third, God didn't give you over to sin. He saved you from them. Let's fight the battle against sin. See, that's something an unbeliever cannot do. They replace one sin with another sin. That's all they do. If, you know, and I, I, I'll use this, you know, if somebody says they're an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever, they, they, and they finally stop doing that, they just start doing something else. They replace sin with other sin. That's what unbelievers do. And we have everything that pertains to life and godliness, and we need to use it to fight sin. We need to do as the unbeliever does with truth and suppressing it, but we must do that with our sins. Not just suppress it, though. Suffocate it. Suffocate your sin. Hack your sin to pieces. Brethren, I don't say this in judgment either, I say it in encouragement. The more you fight against sin, the happier you'll be. How can I say that? Because our fellowship with God grows more and more the less we have fellowship with sin. Don't take your sin lightly, but see them for what they are. They're what hung the Beloved on a tree. If for anything, this should be more of a reason for us to hate it and kill it. And also remember, we don't fight this alone. We fight it together as a church. So I'm not here to condemn you, and y'all shouldn't be here to condemn any other brother or sister if you see some sin. But you walk alongside them and help fight that battle together. That's what the church is supposed to to do, and we should be doing it well. So let's fight together, brethren. Amen.